you have a Bible, go ahead and take it and turn to the book of James, James chapter 2. If you need a Bible, there's some on the back table, and if you happen to have happen to have one of those, and you're not sure where James is, it's on page 1113. James chapter 2. It's been said that you never get a second chance to make a first impression. I remember that from a, uh, I think it was Head and Shoulders. That's where I first heard it, the commercial. Uh, But it's very true. I I remember the first time that I went on a date with Andrea. Uh, She didn't know I was going to talk about this. (laughs) It wasn't her first impression of me. Um, but it was a fairly important one. So I made sure that for that day I picked out my finest shirt um, that I had in my closet. I pur- purchased it at Village Discount Outlets, uh, which is the premier th- thrift store in Akron, Ohio. Uh, it's the same place where my wife some years later would purchase the purse that she currently uses for a quarter. So she's gotten her, her, she's gotten her worth out of that purse. But back to my shirt. Um, it was a highlighter yellow. It was kind of a polo cottony shirt. And it had up here sort of on the, the breast pocket area, it had these words that said, it said dressed to till. And then on the back, it said the same thing. And it had a picture of a John Deere tractor with the words, you could win this tractor. This is a high quality shirt. I'm not sure where, <laughs> who it, who had made this shirt, but I, and I don't know what that choice for the first date that I went on with my future wife, I didn't know at the time, but even just to pick it for any date to wear that shirt, I don't know what that says about me. Um, but I know what it says about Andrea. It says that, that you know, she was very kind that uh, 16 years later, um, she's still with me. She decided not to take one look at me and sort of walk away because of the, the shirt that I chose to wear. She looked past my thrift store highlighter yellow dressed to till shirt, which I still kind of liked, but got rid of eventually. Um, she looked past it and sought to understand who I really was. Uh, I share that because I, I think there's a temptation in all of us to make judgments about people based on first impressions, based on what we see on the external, based on the clothes that they wear or how they look. And those who appear on the outside uh, to have everything together, maybe to wear the nice clothes or to look put together, they are the ones that we sort of gravitate towards. And those who do not are the ones that we are tempted to ignore. But James this morning is going to very clearly tell us that partiality or favoritism has no place among the people of God. Partiality has no place among the people of God. The past few weeks, especially last week, we were focusing on how we grow and mature as Christians and and what maturity looks like in the person who has been born again through faith in Christ. So we saw that we are are changed by the word, we are born again by the word, the gospel, the, the good news is how we are made new. And then the way that we respond to that also helps us to grow. So we respond by by hearing it. Um, by receiving it, and then by doing what it says. And as we respond rightly to the word, we start to see fruits of of godliness in our lives. And we said that James sort of spells that out for us in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1. And he talks about what what godliness will look like. And he says it it will have the elements of a controlled tongue, a concern for the needy, and a commitment to holiness. And that sort of forms the outline for the rest of the book. 
a controlled tongue, a concern for the needy, and a commitment to holiness. He first talks about having a concern for the needy, and that's what we're going to dip into this morning. And then in chapter 3, he talks about a controlled tongue, and then for the remainder of the book, he's going to talk about this commitment to holiness. But as we jump into chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, we're going to zero in on this concern for the needy that we are to have, that if we have been transformed by the Word of God, then we will have a, a special concern for the needy. And specifically, James is going to talk about partiality or favoritism and help us see again that truth that partiality has no place among the people of God. Of course, if we are honest, we have to admit that we often judge others based on their outward appearance. We look at a person, and before we know anything about them, we have already made a decision about who they are. We form this opinion about uh, about who they are and about whether or not we want to talk to them, whether or not we want to engage and interact with them or invest our lives in them. James here focuses focuses specifically on the rich and the poor and the fact that we generally show partiality to those that we perceive to be rich, to those that we perceive to have the world's riches, to have money. But we may show favoritism based on other factors. He's going to focus on the rich and the poor, but we should also open our minds to the fact that we can look at outward appearances like age or race or gender so many other things, and that that will lead us to partiality, along with just countless other things that we could come up with, ways that we look at people and judge them immediately and show partiality towards one group or another. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to allow God's Word to be a mirror, like we talked about last week, to reveal those sinful and broken attitudes that are in us and teach us that partiality has absolutely no place among the people of God. Let's look at what James says here. James chapter 2, and I want to read verses 1 through 7. The section extends into verse 13, but we've got enough to cover in these first seven verses, and we'll pick it up next week in verses 8 through 13. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, though. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world, to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Again, partiality has no place among the people of God. We know that he's talking to the people of God because twice here you see right at the beginning he says, my brothers, and then in verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers. This is brothers and sisters. He's talking to God's people and he's talking about partiality and he's saying about partiality that that is not something that is a part of God's people. So what is partiality? That's kind of the first thing we're going to talk about. What is partiality? And James is going to answer that question for us first by giving an illustration, and then by giving a definition. 
So what is partiality? The first thing that he begins with is an illustration. So verses 2 and 3 provide us with an example of what partiality is. Sometimes it's easier to to see what it is um, than it is to have it explained to us. This is a hypothetical situation in verses 2 through 3. But it also has the ring of something that, that really, truly happened. Um, maybe James has, has seen this occur at different times. Maybe he's drawing from a specific experience and, and sort of maybe the names have been changed to protect the innocent, as it were. Uh, but you look at the scene there in verses 2 and 3, and it, it's, it's the scene of a gathering of brothers and sisters in Christ. So it's, it's a church service. It's something like this. It's an assembly is what he calls it. And into the service walk two strangers. The first is a man in, in fine clothing with a gold ring. So he has a, a, a nice robe on. He has rings on his fingers. The rings, from what I read, are, were a sign of status. Um, and you could even rent rings for specific occasions uh, to make you look more uh, impressive to other people. And so he is an impressive guy. In our context, it wouldn't be robes and rings probably, but it would be maybe he has a, a suit on or maybe just a, a well-pressed shirt tucked in, of course. He shows all the, the signs of, of wealth, maybe by the watch that he's wearing or the car that we saw him park in our parking lot. If it's a woman, we might imagine that she has on designer clothes. She has beautiful jewelry on. Uh, she Her hair is, is perfect. She walks with poise. She comes in and and with her comes the smell of some sort of expensive perfume. Um, this, these, this man, this woman, they, they may even be someone that we recognize. Uh, a well-known business person, a politician, a, a celebrity of, of some kind that we recognize. But even though, even if they're not known in, in society at large, this, this man maybe is a just sort of an arresting figure in this in, in, in our context or or the woman is someone that you just take note of note of someone who, who seems a little bit out of place because she seems a little bit above everyone that's here. So we see this person, uh, this rich person, and then we look next to them and there's a, another figure that we immediately take note of, but we don't take note of that person um, for the same reasons. It's a poor man. He's in shabby clothes. We look at his clothes, and you can probably tell that this is, if not the only outfit, one of a few outfits that he owns. Maybe his shirt isn't the right size, or it's not tucked in. Maybe he's wearing shorts in the dead of winter, or he's got a sweater on in the heat of summer. His hair is sort of unkempt. He, he has an odor that would be the opposite of this wealthy woman's perfume. And if he's known in society, it's because people see him around town and try to avoid him. So both individuals walk in. They arrive, let's say, at virtually the, the same time they come into our church. And they both stand in the foyer. We, we can think about our own foyer. That's fine. They come into our foyer. And they're looking around. And they're both waiting to be approached. And that's the only thing that they have in common. Because they could not be any more different as they stand there. Does that situation feel at all familiar I think it's a situation that we face often on different levels. In fact, I think every Sunday morning we face that situation to one degree or another. Who are we going to pay attention to? And that's what James is asking us. How will you respond in that situation? Who are you going to approach? How will you approach them? And why? 
So we're to put ourselves in that situation. I think James totally wants you to imagine that scene and say, now what would I do? He speaks about a possible response with an if-then statement, and he draws out some conclusions about that. That begins in, in verse 3, and he begins with what would be the most common and likely response. He says, if you pay attention to the rich person, which is what we would all naturally be tempted to do. If you pay attention to the rich person and ignore the poor person, if you give the well-dressed man a seat at the front and you hide the poor man somewhere in the back corner, then you are showing partiality, which is the very thing that he just told us not to do. Isn't that an arresting, shocking illustration? It is, again, what God's Word is. It's a mirror held up to us, and it shows us just who we really are. It's hard not to kind of read it and and wince at what happens, because we are all prone to this kind of favoritism. We we, We learn, as children, we learn very quickly who the acceptable people in society are and who the outcasts are. It's easy for us to figure out. In our sinful nature, our natural bent is to favor the people that society favors and to reject the people that society rejects. So James gives this poignant illustration of what partiality looks like, and then he starts to spell out with a couple of statements that sort of play off each other exactly what favoritism is. He sort of gets to the heart of what favoritism is. So there's the illustration, and then in verse 4 we start to see the the definition. So verse 4 he says, if you do all this, if you pay attention to the one, the rich one, and and shun the poor man, then, verse 4, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So again, what is partiality? We've seen an illustration Now let's look at the definition. And I think James defines partiality in two ways in verse 4. The first is that first phrase, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? What is partiality? It's to make distinctions between people based on outward appearances. It's to make distinctions between people based on outward appearances. So we show favoritism and we show partiality when we decide how we're going to treat someone based simply on what we can see on the external. Favoritism looks at a person and decides based on what we see how they will be treated. Specifically, James again is talking about about wealth and poverty, but again, don't don't pigeonhole yourself into that. Remember all these other external factors. Favoritism can be based on on gender, it can be based on, on plain favorites because of someone's ethnicity, because they're more like us. Maybe the color of their skin. Maybe their age. How do we reject people? How do we push them out? How do we judge them based on external, outward appearances? James addresses clothes here. That's so interesting to me. Aren't clothes a pain? <laughs> Clothes are often just a projection of who we are, aren't they? They, they, We're trying in some ways to show who we are. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but in some ways, hasn't the church said a lot about clothes throughout its history? Maybe you've been in some of these circles. In some church, there are written rules about what you need to wear, literally written. Uh, In most churches, there are unwritten rules about what you need 
it's aware. And you could show up at a church completely unaware that you are either overdressed or underdressed for that specific occasion. I can remember causing a stir by wearing jeans on a Sunday morning as a teenager. I didn't think it was a big deal, but it was. My wife can tell you about wearing shorts on a college campus, and she caused quite the stir there because that was totally unacceptable. I don't think James is trying to tell us to get rid of all social conventions regarding clothing, that we should just not worry about any of that. He's not saying that there's not a place for decorum, that there's not a place for modesty when it comes to what we wear. But in this situation, presuming that both of these strangers walk into the church, they are strangers, they know nothing about this church, and they come in dressed a certain way. That's what James seems to be saying. I think what he's encouraging us is to not judge people by what they wear, especially those who come into our church for the first time, who come into a, a group of believers for the first time and don't know what they are supposed to wear. And especially, very much so, at the heart of what James is saying, is that we should not show favoritism towards those who can afford nice clothing and shun those who cannot. In many ways, this is not a matter of choice. This is not a matter of what I would like to wear, the clothes that I would like to buy. This is a matter of the clothes that I can buy. And when someone comes in unable to purchase nice clothing, we should not shun them. I don't own anything designed by Giorgio Armani. I do own a a shirt that was designed by George. That's the Walmart brand, if you don't know that. But I don't want the label on my shirt to be the factor of whether or not someone accepts or rejects me, especially among God's people. Doesn't that seem so strange? Again, partiality has no place among the people of God. I was thinking this week, Jordan and I were actually talking about this passage this week over some coffee, and I thought, you know, I wonder, we wear white robes in the New Kingdom, everyone does, which is a sign of the of the purity that Christ has, has purchased us, he's washed us with his blood, and we are his. But I also wonder if maybe we all wear white robes because there's no distinction. Everyone is dressed the same, and there is no one who is dressed better than someone else, but that we are all children of God, bought by the blood of Christ, and we are equal. So what is partiality? We see the illustration. Now we're thinking about this definition, and the first definition is to make distinction amongst people based on outward appearances. Tied into that is the second one in verse 4. He says, when we do that, you have become judges with evil thoughts. So the uh, sort of another angle to look at a definition of partiality would be to say it's to judge others with evil thoughts. To judge others with evil thoughts is what partiality is. So judgmentalism, I think we've seen, is tied up in this favoritism and this partiality. But what are the evil thoughts? To judge others with evil thoughts. Uh, We can tell that they're, they're kind of presumptuous and prideful thoughts. We assume, based on a person's outward experience, that we know who they are. But I think we might point out a couple other thoughts, especially as we think about those who are rich and poor. So what are the evil thoughts that James might be getting at here? Here's The the first that I think we can think about are thoughts of personal gain. Thoughts of personal gain. Why would you show favoritism to the rich? Because I want to be rich. (laughs) And because they are rich, and I hope that if I can gain favor with them by being nice to them, that I can be their friend. 
and then maybe I can get some of their money. <laughs> it's not who you are, it's who you know, right? And if I know the right people, if I know people who have wealth and influence, then, then I can rise in society. I can rise up the, the corporate ladder. Maybe I'll get invited to their parties. Maybe I'll get on their, their Christmas gift list and they'll give me something nice for Christmas. Maybe they can get me tickets to that concert that I want to go to because, you know, they know everybody in town. Maybe they'll take me out to eat and then they'll pay for it. <laughs> Why do we do that? What is the evil thought? It's thoughts of personal gain. I can get something from this person. That's why I'm going to show them favoritism. Of course, we could think about that not just from a personal perspective, but the church itself can be guilty of this. The church at large. Members and leaders can say, we're going to make friends in society with the people who have money because it will benefit our church. You know, the church struggles as much with the worship of celebrities as the world does sometimes. The church often gives the platform or gives the pulpit even to people who have power, to people who are, are well-known with the hopes that that person being well-known is what will attract people to the church. Or maybe there's just someone that we look at the church and we know that they have lots of money and we know that they could give that money to the church and so we treat them different. Money becomes a dangerous influence within the church where where we're more concerned about making sure that the people who are wealthy and respected and have riches of this world, that we're more concerned about them being happy than anyone else. Because we're worried about the church surviving. We let them drive the direction of the church. These are evil thoughts. To, to look at someone and show partiality, to show favoritism towards them because of what we can personally gain as individuals or as a church, that is an evil thought. And if you do that, your religion, as James says in verse 26 of chapter 1, is worthless. Thoughts of personal gain should never drive how we treat others. But here's another evil thought. Not just thoughts of personal gain, but let's think about thoughts of personal pain. <laughs> thoughts of personal pain. This may be another reason, another evil thought, and another reason that we show partiality. What do I mean by thoughts of personal pain? I think our shunning of the poor often has to do more with avoiding inconvenience. <laughs> we don't want to feel conviction and then be compelled to help in some way. We, we want to be the people who are given to, we don't want to be the people that are forced to give to others. We can look at someone who is poor and think that they have nothing to offer us. How wrong we are, as James is going to show us here. But I, these evil thoughts of, of personal gain, of avoiding personal pain, they are only evil in light of who we are as followers of Christ. Because if, if you look at the wisdom of the world... And you and I and I were to, to say something like we shouldn't be using others for personal gain or avoiding those who are a potential drain on us. Then they would say that's actually like the best thing that you could do. That that's the right thing to do. Now I would say there's a place for shrewdness. There's a place for wisdom. Jesus himself tells us to make friends through the means of worldly wealth. I mean that's a whole different discussion, right? But I think the point here is that. That God's kingdom, when we're in God's kingdom, it turns everything upside down. And in doing that, it sort of sets everything right, of course. So showing partiality makes sense 
only if we are fully invested in God's kingdom and not in the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of self. If we have been changed by King Jesus, if he is the Lord of glory, then, then showing partiality denies what is, is really real. And James is going to show us some realities now at the re- in the rest of this passage about what is, what is true about the rich and the poor. He's going to give us eyes of faith to see how the gospel transforms the way that we look at other people. So these realities remind us that, that appearances can be deceiving, and you should never judge a book by its cover or a person by their appearance. So here's some realities of the new kingdom that help us to think about people differently and not show partiality. Here's the first reality, and we find it in chapter five or verse five, I'm sorry, is that the poor are uniquely blessed. The poor are uniquely blessed. (laughs) Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Verse 5 says that God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. I think that's the hardest verse in this whole passage. So if you want to spend time thinking about something this afternoon, you can just meditate on verse 5, because it's it's hard, and I'm not probably going to get everything out of it that I could, but or, or that I'm going to get everything I can right now, I, but there's probably more to get out of it than I'm going to. Because this is a difficult statement. Doesn't it seem like God is showing favoritism? And showing partiality? God has chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Is God saying, is, is this reverse partiality? We are tempted to show favoritism towards the rich, and God shows favoritism towards the poor? Is that what's going on here? Well, I don't think the problem is, is choosing. Do you see that? God has chosen those who are poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Of course, God choosing is, he's the, he's the originator of salvation, always. It's his work from beginning to end. Remember, he's the one that brought us forth by the word of truth. We didn't choose to be born again, you didn't, just like you didn't choose to be born. That's, that's a decision made outside of you. So God has chosen us to be born again, and he's chosen the poor to be rich in faith. But where the difficulty is, is God's choosing can't be conditioned on anything in me. It can't be based on something in me. It can't be that God chose me because I was poor. That that would be a condition, wouldn't it? But what is poor? Why does God choose us? Why does God save us? Because we are needy. I think that may be what's, what's going on here. God has chosen the poor because they have absolutely nothing to offer, and they know it. Let me try to say it a different way. That, that the poor are just those who, who see their need of a Savior more easily, and that's why they're chosen by God. The poor are rich in faith because they don't have earthly riches to rely on. The rich struggle with faith because they feel self-sufficient. But salvation is, is rooted in this, in this saying, I need a Savior, I cannot save Myself. That's where salvation begins. And the poor are, are much closer to that decision than the rich often are. Because admitting our needs is not something that many of us do well. Sometimes maybe you see a box 
Ramel can tell you, they sell these at Target. They say team lift, and it has a picture of like two people lifting the box together, you know, meaning that you should not try to carry that box by yourself. You should find someone else to lift it. Of course, that would mean that you have to ask someone for help, which I never really want to do. So I just pick those up by myself and usually hurt myself probably. There's a reason it says team lift. We don't like asking for help in anything. But salvation is actually even harder, isn't it? Because salvation is not a team lift. <laughs> salvation is is not me and God accomplishing something together. Salvation is me saying, I cannot do this on my own. God doesn't lend us a hand. We need God to pick us up, to resurrect us, because we are lost completely and we are broken. And when we won't admit that, then we are like the rich. We are like the people in Revelation 3.17. Listen to this. For you say, this is one of the letters to the churches in Revelation 3.17, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing, God says, that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. We are often those who say, I'm rich, I prospered, I need nothing. But in, in reality, we are poor, blind, and naked. And when we admit our great need, when we believe that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, offers to make us new, to clothe us in his righteousness, to give us eyes to see, to make us rich in faith, that's when we are blessed. The response that we're called to is faith. It's, it's to trust in Jesus alone, not my riches, not anything in in me because none of that can save me and faith James says is something that the poor are rich in God has chosen to honor them they are the ones who love God and who will wear the crown of life that he's promised you see that there is promised to those who love him and you can think about that back in, in chapter 1 verse 12 blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him, the poor will receive the crown of life if they put their trust in Christ. For us to show partiality then, make the connection between these. If we show partiality and we dishonor the poor, we are dishonoring the people that God has chosen to honor. We have a complete opposite view of the, of the poor from God's understanding. God has chosen to honor the poor, and when we show partiality, we choose to dishonor the poor. It's we forget who we are. It's like what Paul is talking about in the passage that Jordan read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that there's not many noble, there's not many wise among us. I think Paul in some sense is saying, take a look around, guys. If you're looking for celebrities, there's not many among you. Not He doesn't say there's not any among you. He just says there's not many. Because God has chosen the outcasts to be a part of his family. So we don't cast out the poor. We welcome the poor because they are the ones that are rich in faith. They are the ones that are fellow heirs with us. How interesting. If our evil thought is, this person is going to be a drain on me. This person is going to be a pain in my life. What does God say? They are rich in faith. They can offer you what is most valuable because they understand it better. So against this desire to show partiality, we see the reality that the poor are uniquely blessed. Here's the second reality of the new kingdom. It's that the rich are not often our friends. 
the rich are not often our friends. We think the rich have something great to offer us, but in reality they often do not. In this context, James says that that while we want to honor them, they are the ones who dishonor us and they dishonor God. Both. We want to honor them, and most often they dishonor us and they dishonor God. They're the ones who were opposing the church and dragging people into court, he says. This may be a way to a reference to persecution in the early church. It could be a reference to the fact that, that Christianity just totally turned over all the social structures of that day. And it gave the poor the status of being children of God, of heirs of God. Imagine what that does for a society that has different levels of, of where you fit in society. And now the church is coming in saying, we are all equal. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. In Him there is no slave or free or Jew or Gentile or male or female, but we are all one in Him. The rich not only dishonored Christianity, but they dishonored God. They blasphemed God's name, he says, probably because they felt like they were gods in that society. The riches and the status of others will make us overlook their faults, and James is trying to help us see that. Because we will let people walk all over us. We will let them dishonor us. They will, we will let them dishonor the things that we love because we see them as popular or rich. Just go to your local high school. That's what happens. We, we, we let people talk down to us. We let people belittle us because we feel like they are the people that we need to be attached to. And it's not just high school. It's throughout our whole lives. This is what we do. And James is telling us that the people that we are trying to honor that we want to be our friends, actually go against everything that we stand for and everything that we love. They're not our friends. Often they are our enemies. And often they are enemies of God. Now, is everyone who is poor rich in faith? No. Is everyone who is rich opposed to God? No. Again, in general though, these things are true, and we need to hear them because they go against what we are prone to believe. And let me give you a final reality. So we've, we've talked about how the poor are uniquely blessed and how the rich are not often our friends, but just to kind of tie things together, th- this big reality is that Jesus is the Lord of glory. Jesus is the Lord of glory, and this is kind of how I want us to, to try to wrap things up. Did you notice how James began, my brothers, show no partiality. He doesn't just stop there, though. He says, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. There's, there's a reason. James doesn't just pick a name for Jesus out of a hat. The Lord of glory. There's a reason he calls him the Lord of glory. That description of Jesus as the Lord of glory is not an accident. James is, is setting forth the truth that God alone is worthy of glory and honor. God alone is worthy of glory and honor. His is the honorable name by which we have been called. And He is the only one that deserves this sort of special recognition in our lives. If you want to honor someone, if you want to show partiality to someone, God is the one that we show partiality to. God is the one that we honor. God alone deserves honor and glory. He's the one that bestows honor and glory. And as God bestows honor and glory on us, He shows no favoritism, and He shows no partiality in doing it. God is described in Romans 2, Paul tells about how 
um, God is going to give everyone according to their works. He will make no exceptions based on whether you're Jew or Greek. And in Romans 2.11 it says, because God shows no partiality. Ephesians 6, Paul tells bondservants to serve their masters well. And then he says in verse 9, Masters, do the same to them and stop stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. God is not a respecter of persons. He is righteous. He is just. And that means that he does not play favorites based on externals. Think about this. I don't think God could, even if he wanted to. Because if, if God shows, God, God sees everyone clearly. He sees us all for exactly who we are. All the, the, the nice clothes that you could wear, or the, the grubby clothes that you could wear, God sees us all. And apart from him, we are all lost, we are all condemned, we are all sinners, and we are all in the exact same boat. How could God show partiality to anyone? He treats us all the same because apart from Him, we are all the same. We are all equally lost, poor, and naked and blind. And and you think about the person of Jesus. When you think about someone not showing partiality, doesn't Jesus come to mind as the person that should be on the poster? Jesus never favored anyone. He, He never saw favor towards the rich and the influential as the way that he was going to gain power. In fact, he always was butting up against them. He showed no favoritism because he was focused on the unseen state of everyone's heart. There's this great scene I want to read you from Luke 7. That Just one snapshot of, of Jesus showing no partiality in contrast to the crowd. So let me just point this out. Jesus, it says... In Luke 7, 1, after he'd finished all his sayings and the hearings of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. So he asks these people to go talk to Jesus to come heal his servant. Verse 4, and when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourselves. Why? For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. We see later that that Jesus heals him. He he says, um, he, he talks about how he's a man under authority. And Jesus says, I have not found such faith even in Israel. And then verse 10, And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Here's a rich man who understood who he was. Everyone else said, he's worthy. Jesus, you should heal his servant because he is worthy. He's rich. He's influential. He's revered in society. But this guy says, I'm not worthy. I'm not even worthy to have you come in my house, Jesus. And Jesus sees that faith. And then I love what the next scene is. You know what the next scene is? In verse 11 of chapter 7. Soon afterwards he went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. 
He said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. He goes from being bidden to go and help this man revered in society to seeking out a widow whose son had died. He sought her out. And he he raises this man from the dead, and then it says he gave him to his mother. What compassion Jesus has. He is not a respecter of persons. Brothers and sisters, our God in Christ is the Lord of glory. He is the only one who deserves any special glory or honor in our lives. And he has chosen to honor those who are poor in riches, to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. And if we are his children, we are his children not because of anything us in us, not because of, of what we have or the, or the clothes that we wore today or the color of our skin or our country of origin. We are his by grace alone. And when we show no partiality, we show that we are children of our Heavenly Father because he shows no partiality. We reflect his character in that. So let's reflect our Father. Let's reflect our Father by not showing any favoritism to anyone who comes through this door or anyone who comes into our lives. That we would ignore externals and we would banish evil thoughts because partiality has no place among the people of God. I I see that heart in this church, a heart that agrees with that. Uh, We're not perfect. None of us will be until Christ returns. But this is a place where I have watched I've watched us embrace the poor and we're welcoming immigrants and and refugees. We're people that will give a hug to the people that the world keeps at an arm's length. And I would just say that, that that honors Christ and that we honor Jesus as the Lord of glory. We show to everyone that, that we have been accepted by faith in him. And it's not because of who we are because he's not a respecter of persons. And we need to, to welcome all as his children, and that we would not be a respecter of persons. And so I would say, I see it. Let's continue. We're not perfect. We can grow for sure. Next week we're going to see that the opposite of partiality is in fact love for our neighbor, to love our neighbor as ourselves. But until then, let's let's seek this week, as, as we see our reflection in God's Word, as we see the character of God here and who He is, Let's, let's seek to root out partiality in our lives, to identify it, to confess it, to hate it, and to see unconditional love for others grow in our lives. That as we root out partiality, as we uproot that, that we would allow this love for all, a love for neighbor, regardless of any externals, that that would grow and blossom in our lives and in our church.